understand what I'm doing wrong. He just doesn't understand what I really need. I feel so lonely. Please do this. Please my mommy and daddy to stop fighting me. God, I need a way out of this. I can't handle the pressure anymore. Is this all that life is? So Julie has a pretty good voice. Um, Julie, thank you. What what a um, absolute joy um, it is to worship together today. If you're new or newish with us, um, my name is Ryan Paulson. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're just excited that you're here. However, you walk in these doors, if somebody twisted your arm, I told you we had breakfast and it was really just donuts. However, you got here, um, we are grateful that you are here, and uh, we're going to have a great time together this morning in God's Word. So let's pray, and then we're going to jump in. Father, thank you for today for the chance to be here, and and Lord, in the midst of a busy season, we just want to quiet our hearts and souls and and actually be here, because it's easy to be in a lot of different places. And so, Lord, our, our, our prayer this morning is that we would hear from you, and that you would change us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever looked at a picture and thought, there's something, there's something wrong with that picture? I, I heard about this ad that um, I believe it was Dillard's placed in a newspaper, and it said this, Dillard's 60% off sale, December 14th through, 20, through the 21st, Dillard's will be having the largest sale of the year, just in time for Christmas. There will be a special appearance by Satan between the hours of 5 p.m. until 9 p.m. for your kids, for your kids. We wouldn't want to scare you with Satan, just your kids. Come sit on Satan's lap. I've been known to make a few spelling errors in my day. Um, I did, as a youth pastor, I did a series on relationships and dating for high school students, and, and I called it The Urge to Merge, and I printed all of these promos, these big promos, and I trans, transposed the R and the G, and it was the Uger to Merge. So I can relate. I've never invited anybody to sit on Satan's lap, though. That's a little bit going a little bit too far. Uh, but you look at some pictures and you go, "There's something. There's something off with th- that picture." Can anybody tell? Anybody see what's off? Just shout it out. What's 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 off? Yeah, there's no bench that they're actually sitting on, is there? Right? No bench that they're actually sitting on. What about this one? What about this one? Standing on the moon. What's in the background? The moon. Right. So. Um, Maybe just a little bit something wrong. We see these pictures all, all around. Now, what about, what about this one? I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what's wrong with this picture. Is that places like this actually exist. I mean, you don't need to look too closely to figure out what's wrong. I mean, what's wrong is you have men running out of a worn, torn city of Aleppo in Syria that's been in a war zone since 2012 trying to get these babies safe somewhere. I mean, you you don't have to look too closely, turn on the news and, and listen too intently 
to figure out that it's not just that there's problems out there, but it, it turns out, if you look even just at a nominal passing glance, it, it turns out that there's, there's a problem here. That you look at our world, you don't have to look at it from the NASA shot from space either, to recognize that there's just there's something wrong and broken with the world that we live in. If you live in this area, you, you heard earlier this week that there was a, a mom in Highlands Ranch who life was just too hard to go on. And so she went and bought a gun and she killed herself and her two kids just earlier this week, or last week, she was found this week. You look at things like the racial divide in our country. You look at issues like homelessness and social injustice. And there's something in us that goes, man, there's something wrong with, with this picture. There's something wrong with our world. There's something off. There's something broken because there isn't a person in this room that doesn't look at those things that we see on the news or hear or read on our app or however we get our news. And if you're just bury your head in the sand, you still have this, this deep longing in your soul that things are off. We're designed for more than what we often experience, that there's something wrong with this picture. Um, there was a, a newspaper that um, ran a question, what's wrong with our world? And the great Catholic thinker G.K. Chesterton supposedly wrote in and said, dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. And it's true. At a very fundamental level, what's wrong with the world is people. That's what's wrong with the world. And we don't have to look too much further to go, well, people are the source of, of the problems. The evil in the heart of humanity is, is why we look at pictures like what's going on in Aleppo or, or Mosul or, or, or around the globe. And we go, man, I just have this sense that we were designed for something different, for something more and what's wrong with the world is people, but what's wrong with people? What's wrong with people? You see, the scriptures would say that there is something distinctly wrong with us, with the world that we live in. And listen to the way that John will say it to the, the group of believers that he's writing to. Here's the way he poses the problem. He says this. He says, we know that we are from God. And he's talking about those who follow the way of Jesus. He's talking about those who by faith have, have stepped into a reconciliatory relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's talking about, if you're a follower of Christ, he's talking about you. He says, we know that we are from God and that the, say it with me, whole world is in the power of the evil one. So he really draws out these, these two categories that you can be in in this world. You can either be a child of the Most High God, redeemed by the blood of the Messiah Jesus, or you can be under the power of the evil one. No in between. Isn't that interesting? We, we would love to think that there's a third category, but John would say, no, there's, you're, you're, either, you're either of God or you're of his enemy, uh, the Satan, if you will, as it's described, he's described in the scriptures. There's just two categories. 
So what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world is simply this. We live in a war zone. That's what's wrong with the world. That the world is under siege. And from the very beginning, here's the meta-narrative of Scripture. So, so meta-narrative would be the story that stands above every story in the Bible. The meta-narrative of Scripture is that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God designs, creates, and speaks the world into existence. And in this poem, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And when he gets to humanity, he goes, oh, that, they're really good. It's sort of like God pats himself on the back when he creates you and goes, I'm pretty good. I'm God, right? It's good, it's good, good. So, so it's really good for two chapters. And then in chapter 3, the enemy, the Satan, steps onto the scene, onto the pages of history and mars God's good and beautiful creation. Genesis chapter 3, it happens that early in the Bible. So here's the deal. Here's what you have to know this morning. I know we have people that follow Jesus in here, and, and we have people who aren't yet followers of Jesus in here. Regardless of where you stand with God, you need to know where you stand with your enemy. You have an enemy. He hates you. He wants to destroy you. And his goal is that you would experience the same type of death that he does. And for some people in this room, you are living out that storyline. Hey, here's the way that Jesus says it in John chapter 10, verse 10. He says the thief, this is also the, the Satan or the, the devil, will, will come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus says something different. He says, that's the enemy's intent with your life. He, he wants to drag you down with him. But Jesus says, I have come. I, I came. He's referring to the, the holiday that we're about to celebrate two weeks from today. He says, this is what Christmas is about. I came that you, humanity, by faith in him may have life, and not just like life where you exist and the type of life where you breathe, but the type of life where you breathe deeply and go, oh, that's what I was designed for. That's what I was created for. That you would have life and that you would have it to the full. So, God is good. There is an enemy. He hates you. Every square inch of God's globe is bathed in his glory. And every square inch of it is contested by his enemy. And here's the Satan's tactic. You'll notice that if you read cover to cover in the scriptures, Satan never goes head to head with God. He knows he loses. So here's what he does. He, he dances to the strobe light that's going on? No. Shiny ball syndrome. Here's what he does. He goes after God's most prized possession. He goes after the crowning jewel of everything that he's created. It's the way that the enemy attacks God's good and mars God's good and perfect creation. He goes after you. And he goes after me. 
Because he knows, he knows if he can get the thing that's most important to God. If he can destroy you, if he can destroy you physically, if he can destroy you emotionally, if he can destroy you spiritually, he knows that eventually, or he thinks eventually, that he will win. So the scriptures will describe in 1 Peter chapter 5 that you have an enemy of your soul that roars around or prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so we sing songs during the Christmas season. You may be here going, well, so Paulson, what does this have to do with Christmas? (laughs) Everything. Everything. We sing songs at, at Christmas like, oh, come thou rod of Jesse, speaking of Jesus, and free thine own, your people, from Satan's tyranny. From the depths of hell thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. We have so over-sentimentalized Christmas that I wonder if we realize what it's actually all about. Here's the way that John will describe the reason for the season. Here's what he says. He says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning. So, so just, just in case you're wondering, if you're going, does John mean whoever sins? No, that's not what John means. What John means is, is whoever continually sins without running back to the Father and saying, I repent, I confess, I'm broken, and I'm in need. Because in 1 John chapter 1, he's already said anybody that claims to be without sin is a liar. So he's not talking about people uh, th- that we need to be sinless. He's talking about being the type of people who do not let sin rule and reign and become slaves to it. That's what he's talking about. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of, say it with me, the devil. Now, just a quick time out. As as Westerners, we struggle with this, don't we? If we lived um, anywhere other than the United States, Western Europe, we'd go, well, sure. There's a spiritual battle that goes on right beneath the surface of everything that we can see. But in our very materialistic Western world... For us to propose that there's an enemy, a spiritual enemy of our soul that wants to destroy us, many of us go, I'm not so sure I buy that, Paulson. And all that I say to that is, well, then you disagree with the Bible. Okay, so, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning, and the reason the Son of God appeared, the the reason for the season was to destroy the works of the devil, See, we think that Christmas is this sentimental gathering around a tree and giving presents and joining together with family and exchanging um, gifts and pleasantries, and, and that's all good, and that's all fine, as long as we recognize that underneath all the tinsel and all the songs and all the presents is the waging of a war. The incarnation is a declaration from the God of the universe that he refuses to leave humanity bound, captured in their sin. And that he will and has come 
to our rescue. And so, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Destruction is the reason for the season. I mean, how would you like to have a Christmas card that said that, right? Hey, Merry Christmas. Uh, really glad to be friends with you. And I just wanted to remind you that destruction is the reason for the season. I mean, in, in this passage in 1 John, John writes, and he does say that um, the reason the Son of God came and the reason that he appeared was to destroy. In the Greek, it's the, the root word is luo. Will you say that with me? Luo. It has two meanings. One is sort of uh, more metaphorical, and that's the one that we have translated here. It's destruction to annul, to completely take down. So I think you could sing at Christmas time that Jesus came in like a wrecking ball, right? Okay. (laughs) That's next week. Come on back. (laughs) Julie's going to sing came in like a wrecking ball next week. The other, the other way to look at it, the more literal translation is to loose, to untie. That, that Jesus, in, with his divine, masterful, beautiful grace, steps in, steps in to humanity's issue. And our issue is that we are tied up in the lies, in the deceit, in the hopelessness, in the fear that the enemy of our soul would love for us to live in. And quite literally, what the passage says is that the Son of God came to untie you. The Son of God came to free you. The Son of God came to speak hope into your despair, to speak joy into your pain. The Son of God came to undo and untie every single evil work of the enemy in your life. That's what the scriptures say Christmas is all about. That's the reason for the season. So here's my question. was he successful? I mean, if that's what Jesus came to do, and the scriptures are really clear in saying the reason he came was to untie humanity from the work of the Satan, from the work of the devil. Did he succeed? Did he succeed? I see some heads nodding. And to that I would say yes and amen, and yet we must be astute enough and culturally aware enough that we know the next question from people on the outside looking in will be, well, then why in the world does the world look the way that it looks? If Jesus, the Messiah, has untied humanity, why in the world does the world look the way that it looks? And to that I say, you're going to have to hold on for a few minutes. I'm going to answer that question. But first I want to talk about and talk through what John has in mind when he says, okay, your, your, your chains are gone, you've been set free. 
What does he have in mind when he says that? Well, if you look at just this one passage, here's what you're going to see. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. So this is the devil's main tactic, is to entice, instigate, draw you towards sin. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. That's, that's who he is. That's what he does. It's in his very nature. And what John wants to do is point us back to the very beginning of the story. To point us back to the, to the meta-narrative. To say, okay, well, how did this whole thing get started? I'm really glad you asked that. It's a great question. Genesis chapter 3. Let's talk about the beginning. It says, now, the serpent, that's the same, the devil that John's referring to, was more crafty than any of the other beasts in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, just anecdotally, God never said don't touch it, but she's adding to the commands of God, which sounds eerily familiar. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And so here's what I want to do. I want to lay out the lies of the enemy and the way that Christmas breaks those chains. So here's the first lie of the enemy. From the beginning, his main tactic, his main tool, will you look up at me for just a second? Not just in Adam and Eve's life, but in your life and in my life. Follower of Jesus, not follower of Jesus. His main tool is the same. And it's he wants to lie to you. That's what he's going after. If he can get your bearing of reality and truth and design off, he can win in your life. But see, here's what Jesus comes. When Jesus comes in like a wrecking ball, when he comes and unties the chains of humanity, he, by truth, frees us from the bondage of Satan's deceit. He frees us from the bondage of deceit. Jesus will echo these same sentiments in John chapter 8. Listen to his words. Speaking to the Pharisees, he says, you are, the you are of your father the devil. Now, just a quick time out. Um, it's things like this that got Jesus killed. Okay? It's, it's times like this that raised people's blood pressure when it came to Jesus because he didn't let people ride the fence. In fact, he pushed them off the fence. By the way, I haven't seen any mugs with this passage on it, but that's just uh, for free. And your will, he says to them, is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. So what he's saying is when, when there's words coming out of Satan's mouth, they are lies because that's who he is. When he speaks lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, and he is the father of what? Lies. And there's two ways, there's two ways the enemy wants to lie to you. First, 
the enemy wants to lie to you about God. You can see this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Did God actually say that to you? The enemy asks. He wants to distort your understanding of what God actually commands of you and what God invites you into. Later on, he'll say, you certainly, you surely will not die. In fact, in fact, if you disobey God, you'll start to be like God. And what's underneath it all is that the Satan wants Adam and Eve and you and I to start to have this thought in the back of our mind, oh, oh, maybe, maybe God is, is holding out on me, right? Like maybe there's something better outside of God's will than there is inside of God's will. And maybe my life will be more joyful, more hopeful, more happy if I make this decision that I know is against what God would command. If I have this relationship, if I take this relationship with my boyfriend or girlfriend to that level, well, then maybe we'll be happy and maybe we'll be fulfilled and we start to buy the lie. And maybe, maybe if I live my life and I hold on to that grudge, I know, I know God says, forgive, forgive seven times, 77, however many times somebody wrongs you, forgive. But man, sometimes it feels good to say no. I'm right. To hold on to all my stuff. And to say, I know, God, I know that your ethic and the kingdom ethic and heaven's ethic is generosity. But man, I got to look out for me. And so we start to look back at God. And we start to go, God, I'm not sure I believe your motives. I'm not sure I believe that you're really actually good and that you're actually for me. And if I follow you, where is my life going to end up? So we start to doubt God and we start to believe, man, it would be way better. This is what Adam and Eve believe. It would be way better to be like God than it is to be with God. That's at the core. It's like, man, if I could just elevate myself, then I would be okay. So that's the lie about God. The second is the lie that we start to believe about ourselves. And here's where the enemy gets to work in your life and mine. Because he will point out, man, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you went there again. I can't believe you're in that same pattern of sin and you're such a moron and there's no way God could actually love you and be for you. And so we start to believe, man, I know the passage says there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus, but there's got to be a footnote with my name on it, except for Paulson. And we start to believe that in order to be okay, we have got to hide who we really are. Here's the way that the, the great existential Danish philosopher, follower of Jesus, Soren Kierkegaard, put it. He said this. He said, sin is in despair, not wanting to be oneself before God. But faith is that the self in being itself and wanting to be itself is grounded in transparency before God. So how does Jesus come in like a wrecking ball? 
What is he, how does he untie the lies of the enemy, the lies about God and the lies about ourselves? Well, let's first tackle the lie about God. He reveals what God is like. Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't appease God. Jesus reveals God. He pulls the curtain back on, oh, this is what your great God is like. He would rather chase you down in your sin than leave you in it. He'd rather step into humanity than have you die apart from divinity. He wants, he loves you, he's good, and he's for you. And he comes in, and he takes our sin, and he takes our shame. And so we can no longer live in the one of two lies that most of humanity live in. Either I'm doing good and I'm okay. You ever heard somebody say that? I'm good enough. Man, the enemy loves that lie. He'll just keep whispering in their ear, absolutely, you are. You're, you're, you're awesome. In fact, let's build a pedestal for you to stand on. And the other side of the lie is, I'm worthless. I'm garbage. How could I ever be in relationship with the perfect God with sin in my life? And into both of those lies, Tim Keller beautifully speaks the gospel. By saying the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared to hope. And when we can hold both of those things as true at the same time, we walk in the untied, relentless freedom that the gospel purchases for us. And then we get to, along with the Apostle Paul encouraging the church in Corinth, then we get to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. So as we look at truth and lies, that's, what, that's part of the challenge is going, all right, God, am I, am I believing truth or am I believing lies here? You know what the best lens to look at that through is? The gospel. The gospel. Am I believing God's grace over my life in this situation? Is fear going to rule the day? Is despair going to win? Is that, that thought about that person, am I going to let that seed be planted in my life? Or will I preach the freedom of the gospel over it? That's the question, friends, that stands in front of all of us. So if you hear nothing else today, will you hear this? that God's invitation to you is to learn how to preach the gospel to your own soul. To learn how to preach the untying, wrecking ball freedom of Jesus over your own life to identify the lies that you believe. Either I'm good enough without God or I am crushed even with him. Both of them are from the pit of hell and the Satan loves them both and will feed them both to preach the gospel, the Christmas gospel over them that says Jesus came for something better, for something more. You're deeply flawed, Merry Christmas, and you're deeply loved. So what else, Paulson? Okay, here's what John continues to say or said before leading up to Jesus coming in like a wrecking ball. Here's what... He says in chapter 3, verse 4, more tools of the enemy. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning 
also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared, that's Jesus, that's Christmas, appeared, incarnation, in order to take away sins. And there is no sin in him. Now notice, sin is lawlessness. What he does not say, and he could have, is that sin is breaking the law. Lawlessness and breaking of the law are two different things. Breaking of the law or violating the law is a form of sin, but all sin can be couched under the category of, it's not that we've broken the law, it's that we've completely disregarded that there was any sort of standard that God laid out for truth whatsoever. It's an active rebellious heart against the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And what John says is that type of attitude ties you up. The bad news is that sin is not a slip-up. It's not a personality defect. It's not a little tiny missing of the mark, like, oh, maybe next time I'll get it right. It's a complete disregard of the reality. That God reigns above it all. Hey, will you look up at me for just a second? There is a God, and you are not him. (laughs) That's what John's saying. We live otherwise. We live contrary to that. And we make decisions contrary to that. Now, now the question is this lawlessness, this idea of the law of God. I mean, wouldn't it be nice, 613 laws, wouldn't it be nice to know what is it that we're actually standing above if that's what sin actually is? I mean, wouldn't it be nice if somebody at one point asked Jesus, hey, could you just summarize the law for us, Jesus? Okay, so those who've been around the story know they did, and he did. And here's his answer. Here's the law, summed up. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And Jesus goes, and and listen, hey, if I could get another one, just a close second, one that flows out of the first. And and the other, the second greatest commandment is like it. Love your whom? Neighbor. Neighbor as yourself. So follow me on this. If the law of God is summarized in love of God and others, and sin is rebellion against the law, then sin is actually at its very core a lack of a refusal to or an inability to love both God and the people around us. And that's what the devil wants. That's what the enemy wants. So from the very beginning, this lawlessness is an inability to love the things of God, to love the people of God, to love God himself. And instead, we start to love ourselves. That's lawlessness. That's an inability to live by the ethic that rules and reigns above every other command. And so lawlessness is actually lovelessness, if that were a word, which it's not. You can Google it. It's not. I wish it were. It would have made this easier. But here's what we see. When Jesus comes, here's what he does. 
He lives, dies, resurrects, and ascends in such a way to where love now replaces the pride of lawlessness. And instead of saying, God, we need to stand above you, we say, God, we stand with you because we are good. And here's the deal, here's the deal. None of us probably would ever say we are lawless. Here's what we'd say. We're right. I mean, that's what it sounds like. That's what it sounds like on Facebook, right? With the grenades that get lobbed back and forth. None of us would go, hey, man, I'm really, I'm struggling with lawlessness, no, we go, I'm right. I'm right here. Politically, I'm right. Socially, I'm right. Relationally, why should I forgive? I'm right. And that's the way it plays out in our lives. See, it's Adam and Eve deciding that they know better than God. And when that decision is made to look outside of ourselves for direction, the direction of our lives turns in on ourselves and starts to haunt us. So if I'm right about this, we, we should assume that in some way, shape, or form, John is going to address the command to love. Okay, so if you have your Bible open, just look a little bit further in chapter 3. And here's what you'll see in verse 11. For this is the message that you've heard oh, from the beginning. That we should love one another. And so here's what Jesus does when he comes, when he comes in like a wrecking ball, when he unties us from the Satan, what he does is he releases us to love God and to love the people around us. Question, how does he do that? Well, the scriptures say we love because why? He first loved us. And so the untying nature of the incarnation is that Jesus comes to declare that you are loved by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And when you know that you are loved, you are freed to love. You show me someone who hates and I will show you someone who doubts that they are loved by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But you show me someone who passionately, ruthlessly loves the people around them, forgives the people around them, pursues the people around them, and I will show you someone who's convinced that they are loved by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's the freedom, you guys, it's the freedom that God wants you to live in. You can't live in his freedom if you aren't convinced of his love. You can't. And so Christmas reminds us that for some, we don't know why, but we're loved by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we'll land the plane here. One more thing. One more tool of the enemy that Jesus destroys says this in verse 6 of 1 John chapter 3. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. 
So, so therefore, follow the reasoning that John unpacks here. Therefore, sin at its core is the inability or the failure to abide in Christ. If you could abide perfectly, you could live purely. That's what he's saying. And so Jesus comes and he starts to speak into that gap, the gap between what we're designed to live in, relationship with God, and what sin has caused or purchased for us, which is division. And because of the work of Jesus, abiding displaces the death of division. It displaces it by grace. It displaces it by instilling in you. Will you look up at me for just a second? If you're a follower of Jesus, the Spirit of God lives in you. We talk a lot about keeping Christ in Christmas, and I'm all for that. So long as we first decide that we are going to abide with Christ in us. Because who cares if we keep Christ in Christmas but have no awareness that God lives in us? And that's what Christmas is all about. It's God by his spirit stepping into God, God clothing himself in humanity first and then leaving his spirit that we could live in relationship, in abiding relationship with him. Which, friends, is why what we do on a Sunday morning is not trivial. It's so important to gather around the story every single week, to remind ourselves that our chains are gone, that we've been set free, that the king of love has stepped into humanity by the way of grace and is showering people with his love. Because I don't know about you, but I start to believe the Satan's lies. And every single week I get a little bit tied up and I preach the gospel to myself and I preach it to my own soul. But sometimes I need you to remind me as we sing songs like, oh, holy night, that the chains are broken and it's gone. It's the reason why, yeah, we are spirit empowered, but we're ritually sustained. It's why we gather together to remind ourselves of the story. And to invite one another back into the relentless love of the Father that says, your chains are gone. I came in like a wrecking ball, and you're set free. There's this interesting sociological phenomenon that's called Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome is when someone who's been captured or kidnapped starts to associate with their kidnapper, and even grows to have an affection towards them. Uh, maybe the most famous Stockholm Syndrome case in the scriptures is a woman by the name of Patty Hearst. She's a granddaughter of the newspaper mogul William Randolph Hearst. She was kidnapped and then for a year started to have an affection for her captor and even went so far as to participate in bank robberies and theft. So back to the question. If our chains are gone and we've been set free, why does the world look the way that it looks. Stockholm Syndrome. That the majority of humanity unfortunately looks at their captor instead of their savior. 
and has an affection for him. Because he says, oh, you can stand on your own pedestal. You can be the master of your own domain. This can be all about you. And you know what? You, you deserve it. And we start to go, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm in. But the King of kings and the Lord of lords has a better invitation for you, friends. Because most of humanity falls into this category that John clearly lays out. This is what's wrong with the world. The true light which gives light to everyone is coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of the will of flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the invitation that's put out in front of all of humanity. And John succinctly summarizes how we live in this victory. We've been talking about it all morning. But here's how he says it in this letter. He says, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And friends, it is faith in the victor. Instead of associating with the enemy and giving him our heart and allowing him to define truth and law and abiding, we say back to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you came to destroy lies and bring truth, bring it to me. You came to destroy pride and lawlessness and invite us into love. Shower me with your love and send me in it. And you came to bridge the gap of division and invite me into abiding. Allow me to abide in you. And so, according to the great words of John Lennon, a very Merry Christmas, and a Happy New Year. Let's hope it's a good one without any fear. War is over if you want it. War is over. Let's pray. So before you go running out of here today, I just want to invite you to take a deep breath. And to ask your king, Jesus, if you're a follower of his today, are there ways that you're buying the lie of the enemy? Are there ways that he's stealing, killing, and destroying life in you where Jesus, the Messiah, is saying, the chains are gone, you've been set free, come home. Are 
Are there ways that you feel divided from him? Because in some ways, the voice of the enemy and, and the voice of Jesus, they sound similar. See, Jesus says, confess your sin, repent, come home. But the enemy says, dwell on your sin. Let it define you. See, he speaks condemnation into your sin, but Jesus speaks repentance and invitation. Will you surrender to Jesus this morning? And then reaffirm to him that your life is in his hands. If that's for you this morning, will you just raise your hand? If you're going, yeah, I'm, I'm believing some of the lies of the enemy. I just want to pray for you. I just want to pray for you. Keep it up in the air. Just, it's a declaration to God. God, I want, I want you to speak over me. And, and Jesus, we do this morning. We believe that you are a good father and that you do good. And this morning, we're just saying back to you that we want the freedom that you've purchased by your incarnation, resurrection, and ascension. We want that freedom. We want that life. We want that goodness. So this morning, Jesus, I pray that you would stir in us, that you would invite us, that you'd speak loudly into the situations in our life that are causing us to walk in bondage and not the freedom that you have for us. And we'll say back to you this morning that we surrender to you, to your love, to your goodness. And by faith, that we would overcome the world. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.